You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. Look together at John chapter 11, and we're going to pick up in verse 7 as we look at the, the background to the miracle in John 11. Verse 7, then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he had meant taking a rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I, that I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you this morning and we thank you for your word. Your word is is good, it's truth. Lord, I, I pray that as we look through it this morning, as we Talk about your word, Lord. I pray that your spirit would be here and guide us and lead us to truth. Lord, I pray that that there would be things in here in which we can take and and glean and apply to our life. I, I pray that more than anything, that we would see Jesus more clearly and that would shape our lives going forward. Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. So today we're going to continue to look at the, the background of the great miracle in John chapter 11. Of course, it is this chapter that we see Lazarus raised from the dead, but there is a, a lot in this narrative that is leading up to that miracle. That, uh, and Jesus himself basically says that what it leads up to this miracle is extremely important as he insists on waiting a couple of days after the news of Lazarus's illness before he goes back to Lazarus. I believe that that says that there is something here in the, in the beginning, the background, that is extremely important for us to pay attention to. Last time, we learned that, that Jesus, as we are told, loved Lazarus and his sisters with a perfect love. The love for which uh, God, the perfect father, loves his children. And that is the reason for Jesus' delay. The, the reason that we're given for his delay and not going back is his love for them. His agape love. That's a difficult truth for us. And the reason for that is that we are on the ground level and we don't see things as God does. 
We don't see his purpose. We don't see the ultimate good that will result from the ground level in the midst of trial and suffering. We tend to focus on the trial. And when we focus on the trial, it tends to lead us to hopelessness. We ended last time with the admonition to fix our eyes on Jesus, to gaze at Jesus, to glance at our trials and tribulations. And why? And the answer is because we recognize that no matter how long and no matter how intently we focus on the trial and the reason and the purpose for it, we might not ever know it. It might not ever be made clear. In fact, it might just seem more hopeless. We fix our eyes on the one who has all things under control. We fix our eyes on the one who is never shocked, the one who is never surprised, who has a a purpose for everything that he allows, who is perfectly wise. And when it comes to his children, all of this will ultimately be for their good. Fix your eyes on the one that has you firmly in the palm of his hand where you cannot be snatched out. Gaze at him, know his great love for you, even in the midst of trial and tribulation, for he is the one with the aerial view, and we are on the ground. I heard from you, I have heard from a number of people that they really appreciated the, the message last week, and, and, and particularly the, the ground level versus aerial view imagery. And my answer to that is even blind squirrels find a nut now and then, I suppose. But today, I, I want you to notice that there's also some important imagery in the text that I hope you will appreciate as well. And the imagery today is actually imagery that is explicitly in the text. Jesus uses it. So let's just at the onset here, I, I want you to notice that imagery, and then we're going to back up a little bit, and then we're going to handle the entire passage as it comes. So just skip down to verse 9 for a moment. There, Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone works in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. You see the imagery, right? Light, darkness, it's this vivid picture And now we've seen imagery of light before, but Jesus is using that imagery a little bit differently here. He's referring to to daylight hours and darkness hours. And, And the reason that he's using this imagery is because it is the reason that he is going back to Judea. It's the reason that he's going back to the place where people were so hostile toward him to Lazarus. Okay, so let's just back up now. So Jesus has waited a couple of days after the news of Lazarus's illness. And then he says to the disciples, after two days have passed, he says to the disciples, we need to go to Judea again. This is head south toward Jerusalem where Jesus had some conflict with religious leaders, remember, In fact, the animus was so great against Jesus in his last visit there that these Jews picked up stones and were ready to kill him, but Jesus slipped away. So the disciples come back and they say, Rabbi, teacher, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you are going to go there again? 
Now, like saying, uh, what's the outcome going to be? I suppose the the disciples were under the impression that for the last couple days, since Jesus had received the news of Lazarus's illness, that they weren't going to go back and they weren't going to go back because of the hostility that existed there. It was safer for them to keep their distance. But the question here remains, is it always really safer to keep your distance? I mean, let's just think about this for a moment. I read an article the other day by Kevin DeYoung. And in that article, he made the comment that one does not have to go around looking for a culture war in our day. Sooner or later, the culture war is going to find you. Especially if the Christian is clear about what they believe. And clarity is one of DeYoung's points in the article. And his his question is, is what can Christians do? Well, they should be clear. They should be cheerful and they should be confident. I'll text you out the the article a little later. You can read it for yourself. But but the point is is, is clarity. And that is something that is lacking today amongst a, a lot of Christians when it comes to difficult issues. Christian leaders often try to please two sides and not offend anyone. They will say, for instance, that marriage is between a man and a woman and rightly affirm that. But then they will speak of Homosexuality is normal and something that ought to be welcomed in the life of the church. That isn't clear. You know what that is? It's safe. Progressive Christianity is largely all about being safe. So safe, in fact, that it keeps his distance from Orthodox Christianity. Orthodox Christian belief. Progressive Christianity is for those who have certain problems with Christianity and say, well, you can actually be a Christian, you just don't have to buy into traditional Christian belief. They redefine things so that they can believe them and still keep the Christian label or have their cake and eat it too, even though it actually isn't really Christian. It's just safe. So what Jesus is saying here is the disciples are a little bit surprised that Jesus would want to go back so soon, and they express that, and they say, essentially, why would we go back? Why would you want to go back? It's safer here. And Jesus answers them. And as we look at his answer, we need to understand that both Jews and Romans divided the daylight period into 12 hours. So half the day was daylight and half the day was nighttime. Now, of course, the daylight hours actually varied in length with the changing of the seasons. This was just a way of speaking. And the reason for that was that it was in the daylight hours, people did their work, mostly. They would do their work in the daylight. And then when it started to get dark, the the, the work day was done as a general rule. Of course, there were exceptions to this, but in the generality, this is what he meant. The disciples would have understood Jesus' rhetorical question in verses in verse 9 as 12 hours in which one works. Why? You don't stumble. You don't fall down when you're working because you can see. Now remember that Jesus is saying these things as a reason why he's determined to go back to Judea. 
Jesus takes his imagery a bit further. Why is it that people do their work in the daylight? Well, it's because they can see. They won't trip. They won't fall. So notice what Jesus is getting at here. He's telling the disciples that the safest place to be in all of the world is in the will of the Father. In his light. If you're in his light, you're actually safe. In the Father's will. Notice the end of verse 10. Because the the light is not him. I take this to mean that the, the safest place for anyone to be is in the Father's will. If anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. If you're in him, in the light, you don't stumble. Where's the safest place to be? In his light. In the will of, of the Father. Now, I, I want you to, to grasp this. Do, do you see how many people today are, are playing it safe? They're, they're unclear. They, they, give, they give in on matters of great importance to appeal to the masses. And, they're, and in their minds, they're, they're, they're being safe. But in reality, it's not the safe place to be. The safest place to be is in the will of God. I, I've been using this as a, a reference to the current cultural moment. But let's just look at it from a little bit different direction. Why would a person... A Christian decide that they want to go to another part of the world for the expressed purpose of making Jesus known where he is not known. Why would they go to places that they know are hostile to the gospel, where it is illegal to convert to Christianity? And why would they go there to proselytize others? I suppose that the answer to that could get relatively complicated if we wanted it to be. But I would say that the bottom line is that those who are convinced they need to go know that it is the expressed will of God that they go. It's the Great Commission. So it's it's God's will for them. Go. And they know that the safest place for them to be is in the will of God. It's interesting how many people would agree to this when it comes to the example of a missionary. When an example is for them to go to the other end of the world and to share the gospel. Yes, they might be in, in China, but it's the safest place for them to be because that's God's will. We say that it is the, the will of God to go and that these people should go because into these far off places. But then when it comes to sharing our faith with our own family and friends and our co-workers, we cower a little bit and we decide that in this circumstance, it's okay to play it safe. It's okay to to not get into those conversations because there might be consequence. It's God's will that we have gospel conversations with the people that we care about, even though it is difficult and there might be consequences. I would say that one look at the examples of Scripture and on this subject, and they're clear, one needs to read no further than the first few chapters in the book of Acts to see both the disciples' desire to share the gospel with those around them and their willingness to do it even when it costed them. And they do this because they believed 
It is what Jesus wanted them to do. It was his expressed will. These were unwilling to play it safe. Or to say it more accurately, they understood that the safest place to be was in God's will, doing what God wanted them to do, even if it meant that they'd be tortured and put in prison. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, we read that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. In other words, sometimes playing it safe is actually one of the most dangerous places you can be. Yes, the apostles knew that they might suffer or die for sharing the gospel, but they also knew that there were things worse than death. They knew that it was important to be obedient. They were not rebelling against the will of God. For them, to rebel against the will of God was not safe. There is another way to look at Jesus' words here. The first is in terms of safety. The safest place to be is in the will of God. Another way to see this is that Jesus is telling the disciples that it is still daytime. It is still working hours. That the night hasn't come yet. There will be a time in which it will not, they will not be able to go out anymore. In other words, nighttime is coming. But for now, they have Jesus, who is the light of the world, and with him, it is daylight, and they need to do the work. It's interesting that in this text, Jesus tells the disciples or invites them to go to Judea. He doesn't tell them that if they come, it will be dangerous. That's obvious. But he says that the time has come for them to go. And it's true that there is a sense here in which Jesus' ministry is coming to a close. He didn't have a long time to start with, but it isn't closed yet. It's still daylight, and Jesus is the light of his disciples, and there is still work to be done. They still need to go. Jesus had work to do. Most immediately, his work was to go to Bethany to find Lazarus in a tomb and raise him from the dead. A little oversimplistic maybe, but this is what Jesus was about to do. Jesus' work was also to die, taking the place of every person that would trust in him for eternal life. Jesus' reference to daylight hours here points us to the fact that there will be a time in which night will come, in which Jesus' time on earth is finished. But as John 11 makes clear, Jesus too, he may die. Night will come on his earthly ministry. But that isn't the end. As Jesus will declare, I am the resurrection and the life. A a new day will dawn, a day in which Jesus may not be living on earth with us, but he hasn't left us. Listen to a few verses from John chapter 16. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus 
doesn't leave his disciples as orphans. The Spirit comes, and the Spirit's job is to take what is Christ and declare it, to make truth known. The Spirit glorifies the Son. You see what I'm getting at here? Jesus is saying that that while it is daylight, there's still work to be done. For Jesus, his earthly ministry is setting, so to speak. It isn't dark yet, though. That's his point here. There's still work to be done. For the disciples, Jesus will make it clear that just because he leaves doesn't that doesn't mean that the day is done. It doesn't mean that the, the time for them is run out, that there's no work to be done. It isn't over because he hasn't left them. It's a beautiful picture. And it's a clarifying reminder of what the Holy Spirit's ministry is. And that is to bring to light Jesus' teaching, to glorify the Son. There's a a great problem in the Christian world today in in not understanding the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is is often set apart from the ministry of the Son, as if they have two separate missions and two separate expressed wills. The Spirit exalts the Son. He takes what is His and He declares it. Is the ministry of the Holy Spirit necessary? Absolutely. Without the Spirit of God, we would be spiritual orphans. But we're not. And it is because we are not spiritual orphans that it is still daytime. And it's because it's still daytime, it means that we still have work to do. So here, Jesus says that this is an answer to why they needed to go back to Judea. There's still work to be done. They're not going to play it safe. And after he said that, he told them, and the wording here is really important. So I'll just read verse 11 to you. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go awaken him. Just notice the wording. Jesus has already said that he and the disciples were going back to Judea. Now he speaks of our friend Lazarus, but then he says, I go awaken him. There's a switch here between The hour and I, and that is important. Let me draw your attention back to the illustration I used last week about the church in California that prayed for days to raise a two-year-old girl from the dead, a little girl named Olive that died suddenly. Bill Johnson is the pastor of that church there. He was talking about this, and he was uh, trying to give justification why they were doing this, because a lot of people were asking him for it. And he said this, and I'll quote, We have biblical precedent. Jesus raised the dead, exclamation point. Not only that, he introduced himself as the resurrection and the life. In fact, in John 11, verse 40, he says, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. Now, I bring this up again today because Johnson makes a reference to John chapter 11, the passage that we are studying. And When we come to this, we have to ask the the question, is there biblical precedent for something like this in John chapter 11? Now, let me say something very clearly before I answer that. Bill Johnson is a, a false teacher, not only because he gets this wrong, but because he gets a lot of things wrong. Let me give you one example. This is a quote from his book, uh, The Physics of Heaven. Uh, Johnson says this, and I quote, there are anointings. Mantles, revelations, and mysteries that have laid unclaimed. Literally, 
where they were left because the generation that walked in them never passed them on. I believe it's possible for us to recover realms of anointing, realms of insight, realms of God that have been left unattended for decades simply by choosing to reclaim them and perpetuate them for future generations, end quote. Now, this statement has been a, a, the grounds for a practice known as grave sucking, where people will go to the graves of believers that have passed on and they will try to suck or soak in their anointing. Talk about mysticism. This doesn't point one to Christ, but away from Christ and towards some mystical anointing or some mystery that has laid unclaimed until one comes along and soaks it in. It's, it's weird, but more than that, it's not Christian. It actually undermines the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Bible, Jesus continually points to Christ. The Spirit points to Christ. And to seek his power and to his strength, after all, it is when we are weak, he is strong. We are to fix our eyes on him who is the author, the perfecter of our faith. We don't need unclaimed anointings to do that. We don't need to seek after strange anointings and mystical powers of others. It's not only wrong, it's utterly dangerous. I mean, there's a point here in which with these practices, they're not Christian, they're occultic. It borders on necromancy. Something that is forbidden in scripture in any case, Back to to John chapter 11, Johnson uses John 11 as justification in praying for the resurrection of the dead, the little girl in this specific instance, saying that because Jesus raised the dead and that he is called the resurrection and the life, and because he says that if these in John 11 believe, they would see the glory of God. Now in our text, Jesus says something very telling. And he makes the point so clearly. All the disciples would go to Lazarus. They wouldn't play it safe. They would go. But it was Jesus alone that would raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus alone is the resurrection and the life. And keep reading there in verse 25. Jesus says, whoever believes, although they die, they will live. Those who believe, they will never die. Clearly, Jesus is not intending that people will read his words here and pray for people to be raised. That isn't the hope that he's talking about. What we have here is Jesus displaying his power over the grave. And it testifies to the fact that he will give life to those who believe in him. The grave is not the end. Johnson has missed the entire point of the text and the entire hope of the Christian faith. And the point and the hope of the Christian faith is Jesus gives life. This is the the great hope that we have for every saint that passes away and we come together and we celebrate at the funeral. The hope is Jesus gives life. The hope that one has after receiving a, a terminal diagnosis Their hope is then the fact that Jesus gives life. The hope that Dave has when Jody is in the hospital in ICU and she might not survive. 
His hope is in the fact that Jesus alone gives life. When a child of two years old suddenly passes away, suddenly, they don't know why. The hope that those parents have is in the fact that Jesus gives life. Jesus alone is the resurrection and the life. Of course, we realize that Lazarus died. Jesus was referring to his death here when he said that he would go and raise him from the dead. We need to understand here that Jesus is making connection. He's he's going to, to teach the disciples something and us something really important, something that I've already alluded to, and that is that when any believer dies, they are awakened by Jesus. They're raised by Jesus, right? This is the, the Christian hope. And there is a great sense here in what Lazarus experienced, every believer will experience, right? The resurrection, that's the hope. And of course, in our text, in the background, the disciples weren't thinking death at this point. They were thinking sleep, so Jesus makes it plain to them. In verse 14, Jesus told them, Lazarus has died. Then we have verse 15, and there is something here that that we need to understand. Jesus is speaking to the disciples and said, After he told him that Lazarus had died, he said, For your sake I am glad that I was not there, that you may, so that you may believe. It sounds a little bit strange for Jesus to say that he was glad that he wasn't there and Lazarus died, but that isn't the point. We know that Jesus was sad. He weeps later on over Lazarus' death. The gladness here isn't in the fact that he's gone when Lazarus passes away. The gladness here is in the future belief of the disciples, that they would see the the greatness of God, that they would glorify God because it is Jesus alone that gives life. They would see the the hope. He's glad that they will see the, the power of God to give life, and he rejoices that they will believe and glorify the Son who gives life, who offers hope. So then, getting to the end, Thomas, we don't know much about Thomas. We don't know a lot about this disciple, but apparently he was a twin. It says that over and over. We don't know whose twin he was. There were some guesses. Some even actually say he was Jesus's twin, but that would be ridiculous. Some say that he was the twin of Judas, but that's just speculation in the end. But if I asked you what we know about Thomas, the disciple, what would you say? I would guess that you would say, well, he was a doubter. I mean, that's his nickname, right? Doubting Thomas. Well, in the other Gospels, we have his name in the list of disciples, but really it is only in John and his Gospel we learn anything about him. We learn something here, and we'll get into that in a moment. But in chapter 14, Jesus tells the disciples that he's going to prepare a place for them, and in the Father's house there are many rooms. Do you remember that conversation? Then Jesus says, that he will come again and take them to himself so that they might be with him. And it is Thomas that pipes up at that point and says, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus responds with, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Thomas led to that great proclamation. In chapter 20, Thomas wasn't with Jesus when he had appeared to the disciples after the resurrection. 
And the disciples told him about it. But he says, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into the side, I will never believe. Well, then later on, Jesus comes to them again. And he tells Thomas, put your finger on my hands and and in my side. And then he says to him, believe. And Thomas answers with, my Lord and my God. In chapter 21, Thomas was among the other disciples that went fishing at night and caught nothing. And as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore and asked them for fish. Of course, they hadn't caught anything. So they cast the net out again and they catch a a lot of fish. And they realize that this is Jesus. And they came to the shore and Jesus had a fire prepared, ready to cook some fish that they caught for breakfast. Like I said, we don't have a lot of information about Thomas. It's interesting, though, that in chapter 11 here, we don't see doubt, but we see devotion. So Jesus tells the disciples plainly that that Lazarus died and says this in verse 15. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we almost that we may die with him. The statement, I I think, should be understood not as sarcastic, but understood as devotion and even courageous, although it was grounded in misunderstanding. I mean, he failed to understand Jesus' point in verses 9 and 10, meaning that Jesus' time was not yet. It was still daytime, daylight. There was still work to be done. There's another way in which he misunderstood it well, and that is that Jesus, that when Jesus died, his death would be for the sins of the world, that he would take the sins of every person that would believe in him. It wasn't a death that the disciples were to share in. As if there was some noble factor in following their leader to death. The disciples were needed when Jesus was gone. In other words, uh, martyrs don't want to die, but they're certainly willing to do it. And Thomas is here saying, we're willing to go with you to death. Let me just conclude with this. I, I think that when you think about the end of this text, primarily in verse 16, we need, to th- we need to think about it in terms of risk and reward. You know, even though Thomas didn't understand some things here, and this call to, to go and die was, was rash, right? Come on, guys, let's go and... There's a great point that needs to be made here. And and Thomas, like all true disciples, looks at risk and reward. Now, notice I said all true disciples. If one is not a, a true disciple, a true believer, that's what I mean, they will look at the Christian life through the risk and reward dynamic and find that the reward offered in the Christian faith isn't really worth the risk. The parable of the soils makes this point abundantly clear. Those that that fall away do so because they find the reward to be not worth it. Either persecution or hardship come and they and they they come in to pay the the they they think that the risk outweighs the reward, or they they come in contact with the the pleasures of this life and the, the reward of worldly pleasures outweighs the reward of following Christ. 
The fact is, though, a true disciple looks at the risk and the reward of following Jesus, and they follow him, even to their death. The risk is always worth the reward. Right? Jesus tells the parable, right? That the pearl buried in the land. The true disciple does what? Go and sells everything that he has to gain it. The risk of selling everything is worth what you get in the end. The cost of discipleship is worth it. And to go back to our conversation a little earlier, the, the risk of sharing our faith with our, our friends and our family is worth it. We, we look at things in terms of risk and reward. And we come to the conclusion that in the end, that Jesus is always worth it. it, it the safe thing to do isn't always safe. This is still daylight. He's with you. He's guiding you. There's still work to be done. And what about those who who pick up and move their family across the world for the cause of Christ? Do they look at things through risk and reward? Of course they do. They move to a, a hostile place to tell people in a country that don't know about Jesus about Jesus because they know that in the end, Jesus is worth it. The reward outweighs the risk. And something coming in this text is that that we can't miss is that Jesus always gives life. I am the resurrection and the life. He gives eternal life. Jesus is the ultimate reward. He is the true life giver. And when we start thinking about what Jesus has done for us, as, as true disciples, as true believers, when we think about the, the sacrifice that he made for us, when we start thinking about the, the, the lengths that he went to, to to take our sin upon himself, to, to throw it as far as the, the east is from the west, to not count us guilty, but count us as his children, when we start thinking about all of these things, and then we start thinking about risk and reward, we recognize reward is always worth the risk. Because it's always the right place and the good place to be is in the will of God. That's the safest place to be. So ask yourself this morning, am I looking at my life in terms of risk and reward? And if I do, am I really, am I just playing it safe? Or is the reward really worth it? Is Jesus really worth it? Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.